Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Childers here. The Bible seems to indicate that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and completely sovereign, and that He predestines all things, including the fate of our individual souls. It also seems to teach that human beings have free will. So what do we do with the apparent tension between these two ideas? Today's guest believes he's found a solution in a view called Molinism, which is based on the work of a 16th century theologian named Luis de Molina. Stay tuned. guest today has a very interesting history. He was in youth ministry for 15 years, serving as youth pastor for over nine of those years. And after seeing the impact the new atheists were making on the minds of his impressionable students, he decided to devote his life to answering the tough questions about God and Christianity. He went on to get his master's degree from Biola and is working on his PhD in systematic theology with a focus on metaphysics. He's an adjunct professor at Nebraska Christian College and is in the process of ordination with the EFCA. He has spoken to numerous audiences around the country and loves to engage in one-on-one conversations with anyone doubting the truth of Christianity. You can find his blog and podcast at freethinkingministries.com. I'm thrilled to welcome Tim Stratton to the podcast. Hey, Tim. Hey, Elisa. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. And we have actually decided to break this up into two parts. This is going to be a two-part series because it really is such a meaty and deeply theological topic, and uh, it's one that I have thought a lot about. And so to frame what we're going to be talking about for the listening audience, I mean, we could go so many different directions with this, right? Yeah, that's right. But uh, I think that what we're going to focus on here is that there, there's a conundrum that Christians have been trying to solve for all of church history. Mm-hmm. And that is that the Bible would seem to indicate that human beings have free will, right? Right. And then the Bible would also at the same time seem to indicate that there is this idea of predestination. In fact, I mean, you can't get away from it. The Bible clearly says that God predestines. We have uh, Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are tons of Bible verses that talk about 
this group of people called God's elect, the chosen, uh, right. the, the predestined. In fact, in Ephesians, it says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So it's saying that we, you know, if you're a Christian, you've been predestined to be so and elected by God. Uh, but then the question then becomes is how, how does God predestine? That's right. And how does that interact with the idea that we are free beings to choose God or to reject him? Because this, because, uh, you know, for people who are listening, this is a really important topic to wrestle with because it's where you land on this is going to affect how you pray. Yeah, it's, that's yeah, right. It's going to affect how you, how you approach God, how you live as a Christian, how mm -hmm. you evangelize. It's going to affect virtually every part of how you approach your Christian life. Right. And it's, it's something that is, is a very difficult thing to solve and to, to think about. And it's something I think about quite a bit. So, you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of different terms. We're going to be mentioning Calvinists. And I just want to say that you, neither Tim or I are Calvinists. We, we do not call ourselves Calvinists, but I think, Tim, you would agree with this, that we have a great amount of respect for Calvinists. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, some of my favorite thinkers and writers are Calvinists, and yep. I learn a lot from Calvinists. So this is with a tremendous amount of humility and respect toward people we disagree with um, to, to talk about some of these uh, difficult topics. This is much, very much an in-house debate. This is nobody's accusing anyone else of going to hell or, you know, right. you're not a real Christian or anything yeah. like that. We're just really trying to, 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 to know God's heart on a very difficult uh, topic. Mm -hmm. So what is your story? You, you mentioned that you used to be a Calvinist. And from what I understand, you were a pretty hardcore Calvinist. You were one yeah. of those guys that would be, you know, debating the, <laughs> the, the Baptists and, you know, the, well, some Baptists at least, right, some are, right. some are Calvinists, but yeah. <laughs> it depends. But, um, so, but, but you were, you were all in, uh, on Calvinism and, and you changed your mind. So why don't you just fill us in on your journey a little bit and, and what, what, uh, predestined you to do that? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, I've, one theologian who read my, I read my story, you know, he, he said, well, Tim Stratton was never really a Calvinist right, as a pastor. Right. He was I'm like, well, I was too. I mean, you know, so you, you have to say, well, what do you mean by that? Basically, I knew the five points of Tulip, and I was committed to those five points. And I would say I was even, uh, I, I would even go a little bit further than those five points, and I affirmed the proposition that God causally determined all things. Mm -hmm. So my wife was raised differently. Um, she was raised in a charismatic church. Uh, that uh, they would call themselves Arminians, probably. But I was raised in a evangelical church, which although had mm -hmm. its roots in Arminianism, uh, I, at least around middle America, where I live, uh, it seemed almost every pastor I knew in the E-Free Church was Calvinist. I think that's starting to change again. Anyway, so my story, I'll just say this, my wife and I used to fight over this really bad, uh, because... Mm -hmm. I believe that God determined everything, including those who went to hell, uh, including our thoughts. And so I wondered why God would cause her to think incorrect since he was causing me to think correctly. I mean, that's really circular. But right. anyway, I was raised 
as right. a Calvinist, not by my parents. I don't think my parents ever bought into Calvinism or at least a causal deterministic Calvinism. But as I said, the pastors who I learned from, as far as I know, were all Calvinists. Some were very strong and committed. One of the main guys that I learned learned from has now rejected Calvinism. You know, he's like 70 years old now and just came to reject Calvinism after teaching and preaching it for decades. Wow. Now, I, I had bought it and taught it, Calvinism. And as a pastor, as a minister, I was preaching it for over a decade in ministry. And I, I would be hardcore about it. And I'd throw down with anybody, including my wife. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the one time when we got in such a horrible fight where I actually led to me sleeping on the couch for the whole night was over Calvinism. Wow. <laughs> what a jerk I was. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, like I said, I bought it and taught it for over a decade and was willing to debate anybody over Tulip. But then I started getting into apologetics. And oddly enough, the same guy who recently became a Molinist, who was a hardcore Calvinist at the time, gave me a book called Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. And at the time, it was pretty hard for me to get through. But mm. I started trying to work my way through, and I thought, well, I'll start watching some of his YouTube videos. And because and a lot of the kids in my youth group were asking apologetics-based questions, and I wasn't equipped to answer them. So that's why he gave me that book, and that's how I got how I was really introduced to Dr. Craig's work. Well, I was watching him debate Christopher Hitchens a few years ago. I was watching this on YouTube. Yeah. And I was loving Dr. Craig. And I, I just assumed, man, this guy is such a good Calvinist. <laughs> you know? I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I thought every smart Christian was a Calvinist. Right, right. And I thought to myself, this guy is the smartest Christian, smartest person on the planet I've ever seen. And then... Christopher Hitchens was trying to put Dr. Craig in a corner of sorts and, and said, well, name one thing in which you disagree uh, with a majority of other Christians or something like that. I can't even remember the exact context, but this is what I do remember. Dr. Craig kind of pausing and saying, well, I don't think Calvinism's true or something like that. My jaw right, dropped. Right. And I was like, no, what? I, heresy. Right. I was loving this guy. I thought he was the smartest person on the planet. And then all of a sudden, not just the smartest Christian, but now all of a sudden I was doubting his Christianity yeah. because I was like, man, if you're a smart Christian, you've got to be a Calvinist. And I immediately shut the debate off and went to Google and I think mm -hmm. I, I typed in, is Dr. Craig a Calvinist or something like that? And all this <laughs> stuff on Molinism started popping up. I'd never heard of Molinism before that. And I thought, what is this heretical view? I've got to get to the bottom of this. I've got to disprove it. And so, yeah. like I said, I was willing to debate Tulip with anybody, including Dr. Craig. You know? right. so, it, <laughs> yeah, I remember that debate. Dude. and. um being being very surprised to hear him say that because I think I I've never been a Calvinist but I think I just assumed he was yeah yeah well like I said any any smart person had to be a Calvinist that's what I thought so, <laughs> so I started studying Molinism I wanted to understand it I wanted to understand it correctly and then I was going to refute it and for the next year almost every day sometimes for several hours a day. <laughs> I would spend part of my time in as a as a pastor at the E Free Church, I would spend time in my office studying it for the sake of destroying it. 
And as I grew to understand right. it more and more, right. it started to click. And I realized, wow, this has biblical support. I came to the position that this can make sense of all the biblical data, not just some of it, not just most of it, but all of it. And then I mm-hmm. thought, wow, and not just does it support all the biblical data, it makes the most logical sense. It clicked, and I, I remember driving home one day, and I called my wife, and I said, I think I'm yeah. losing my faith in Calvinism. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm losing my faith in Calvinism. I wasn't quite to the point there yet. I think it was uh, during the Super Bowl when it finally clicked. Um, I was watching the Super Bowl with a, another pastor friend of mine who had training in philosophy. And we were, for the first three quarters, discussing uh, Molinism. And it clicked right before the fourth quarter. And so then I sat back and just enjoyed all the players playing freely and watching what was right. to occur. <laughs> I was just thinking that, like, <laughs> right. that. <laughs> that they weren't being uh, causally manipulated by God. You know, I could watch free players actually play a real game yeah. and yeah. know that God still predestined the mm. outcome without controlling yeah. it. You know, he's not a puppeteer. So that's kind of the, the story of how I became yeah. a Molinist. Um, and you've got a great article on your website that I forget the exact title, but it's something like Molinism Saves Marriages. <laughs> that's it. That's the exact yeah. 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 So now, now we see why. Well, that's, that's a great story and a very interesting story because usually the, the story goes in the other direction. I know a lot of Calvinists who were not raised Calvinists who converted to Calvinism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, later in life and, um, and again, are uh, just as sincerely convinced that 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 is the biblical view. And and again, nobody's bashing anybody. This is just where some people are landing with this. So before we talk more about where you've landed with this, Tim, we're going to define some terms because we're going to be using some terms that we want to be really clear what we mean when we say them. And so uh, the first sort of uh, variable in this uh, whole thought process is the idea of divine sovereignty, which the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. And both uh, Arminians and Calvinists, and as we're going to talk about another view called Molinism, everybody is going to affirm that God is sovereign. But Tim, what does that mean? What is divine sovereignty? Uh, Well, great question. Um, And that's kind of a, a meaty question just to start out with. But let's Let's just, we'll just say, uh, I like how Norm Geisler has defined it in the past. Uh, divine sovereignty refers to the fact that God is in control of and governs over all of his creation. And so when we discuss God's sovereignty, we're discussing God's rule over all reality, basically. Mm. And so the debate is not over, and you, you mentioned this, the, the debate's not over if God is sovereign over all things. The debate is over how God is sovereign over all things. And, right. you know, and this is what, this is what frustrates me sometimes because uh, I, don't, I don't understand why some of my Calvinist brothers and sisters would get so, I, I feel like they have a mis- misunderstanding at times because I feel like they can get angry with me. Uh, because they don't think that I am affirming that God is sovereign over all and predestines all things. The Molinist does mm-hmm. affirm predestination over all things, everything. Right. Um, but the disagreement is over how God predestines all things. The, de- the, the disagreement is over how God is sovereign over all things. 
Right. So, so with with that said, um, I'm going to go ahead and have you define predestination, but also talk about another term that people often use interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing. And so predestination is a very biblical concept, but sometimes people confuse that with the term divine causation or divine causality. So what are the two and how are they different? Good question. Uh, predestination, um, I just like to define that by saying that that is the act of foreordaining every event from eternity. Now, that definition mm-hmm. is going to raise other questions. Well, what does foreordaining mean? And I'll mm-hmm. simply say to appoint beforehand. So again, the question is, what does that mean? And are there different manners in which that can be done? And that's what the debate is over. It's a really... Uh, a philosophical debate. It's not a debate on scripture because we all agree on the scriptures. <laughs> so the question is right. We affirm the same scriptures. Right. Yes, so we're asking, exactly. what does that mean? You know, and are there different ways in which these terms can be understood philosophically? Uh, so you. So divine causation. Right. What is that? Divine uh, causation or divine causality. Um, it, it can have two meanings: one in which I affirm, and the other in which I reject. The Manner of divine causality that I affirm simply means that God, or it simply refers to the things that God does cause. For example, I'm a strong proponent of the Kalam cosmological argument. You know, uh, whatever mm-hmm. begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, and we can flesh that out to show that this is God that caused the universe. Well, I affirm divine causality in that sense. Uh, God caused and created the universe. But divine causality can also mean that God causally determines all things, everything from Mm -hmm. not just the universe, but to everything, including your thoughts and your beliefs and your actions and your behaviors. When it comes to that, I reject it Um, Mm -hmm. because that's uh, in that um, manner, divine causality means exhaustive divine determinism and or causation. And I reject that. So um, now I contend that God can predestine all things, even your thoughts and your beliefs and your Mm -hmm. actions and your behaviors without causing or determining your your thoughts and your actions and your beliefs and your behaviors. So that's the question. And and that's the, I offer a model that can make sense of what I just stated. So yes, and we're going to get to your model because I like it. (laughs) And um, okay, just just a question, a practical question. If I choose to uh, take a drink of water right now, is that has that been predestined by God? Yes, but that doesn't mean that He's causing you to do it. Right. Yeah. So okay, so we're going to define one more term before we get deeper into this because I don't want to lose people because I know this is this can get technical. This is a very theological discussion today. So just to sort of wrap up what we've talked about, we affirm Calvinists, Arminians, uh, Arminians and Molinists affirm that God is sovereign. God is in control and rules and reigns over all of creation. We affirm that God predestines mm-hmm. everything. Uh, but where we're probably going to part ways is does he actually cause that? Because in my view, Tim, and I think you would agree, divine causality is in contradiction with human free will. That's right. And so why don't you define for us what, what it means for humans to have free will, which is sometimes referred to as libertarian free will. Okay. 
Um, libertarian free will, you know, I'll just say this. I was, I was having a Skype conversation uh, with a well-known theologian who will remain nameless, but he is committed to his Calvinism. And he uh, had some mutual friends uh, contact me because he wanted to have a discussion with me. Uh, he was trying to understand what libertarian free will really meant. And I defined it for him. I'll, I'll give you the, the same definition. But then he said, wait a second, you didn't use the Bible in your definition. Hmm. And I said, well, first we need to understand what it means, what this concept libertarian free will means. And then once we understand the concept, then we can see if it is biblically supported. Right. And he hated right. that. And he hung up on me. Whoa. <laughs> so. Wow. Um, so here we go, that we're going to define what libertarian free will means, and then we can see if it's actually taught in the Bible or supported by the Bible. So I'm going to give you a couple different definitions. One, the first one here is kind of more technical, and it's this. Libertarian free will is a conjunction of a rejection of compatibilism along with the affirmation that humans possess free will. Mm -hmm. So that's a tough one, because now... The question is raised, what do you mean by compatibilism? And just very quickly, I like to use, since I'm a Star Wars fan, I mm -hmm. like to use, uh, did, well, did you see the movie Rogue One that came out last yes, year? Yes, I did. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like to use the droid K2SO uh, to help us understand compatibilism and responsibility. Hmm. Now, uh, K2SO in the movie, or K2 for short, was once the property of the evil galactic empire and programmed to act accordingly. If I have my Star Wars trivia correct, K2SO was actually built by Arachid Industries, but that's just for the Star Wars nerds out there. <laughs> um, so, so K2SO was built and programmed to have an evil empire nature, if you will. And he was even programmed to like his evil empire nature. So the empire originally had K2SO programmed, the droid programmed, to be one of the bad guys. And some might say that K2 was born into sin. But K2's story does not end there. You see, Cassian Andor of the Rebel Alliance apparently kidnapped, or should I say droid-napped K2, and reprogrammed the droid to now act according to the goals of the rebellion, which are antithetically opposed to those of the empire. So K2SO was not responsible for this reprogramming either. Cassian Andor was responsible for that much. So now, thanks to the work of Cassian, K2 is now one of the good guys. Now, some might think that K2 used, or used to freely, quote-unquote, act in accords with the droid's original programming, and if left to its own devices, would necessarily and, quote-unquote, freely act in accord with the goals of the evil empire. Now, some contend that this is a form of free will called compatibilism. And so mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what I mean by compatibilism, and this is what I reject, because this sort of freedom isn't free at all. There's no responsibility mm -hmm. here whatsoever. Right. So that's to say that as long as K2 is programmed to act in accordance with the evil empire's goals, it will do just that until another external force changes the droid's nature or programming. And in my opinion, this is not worthy of the name free will at all. I, I contend that on compat or, there's nothing free about compatibilistic 
free will. I think it's just a word game and yeah, nothing yeah. more. So yeah, yeah. In this in this sense, it's clear that K2SO is not a free thinker. The droid has been programmed to think a certain way, and then reprogrammed to think a different way. And K2 has no ability to think or behave otherwise. K2 is not responsible in any sense of the word. And I believe that the Bible is clear that we are responsible agents and right. that the Bible is clear that we, we have real genuine choices to make and that when we do make one choice, we could have made another choice, which is not the case for K2. Right. So I like to say it like this. Simply put, libertarian freedom or libertarian free will is at least the ability to genuinely choose between options in accord with one's nature. Now, mm-hmm. I contend that the Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote Romans 9, is clear about this much, that at least some people have a real and genuine ability to choose uh, between choice, you know, to make a choice or not make that choice in certain circumstances. Uh, for ex- example, I don't know, don't know if you want to get into biblical data right now, but first current. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, okay. let's let's do it yeah. because obviously, what as Christians, you know, we we've defined the word, but it's important for us to know: is this what the Bible teaches? Yeah, is it so, compatible yeah. with the Bible? And and so, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you this: in my doctoral dissertation, chapter two, which I'm you know I'm, I'm working on the dissertation right now, but I'm uh, done with chapter two. Uh, chapter two is doing nothing but surveying the biblical data from cover to cover. And so mm-hmm. I'm looking at all of the verses that I can find that really seem to, at least at face value, would seem to imply perhaps determinism or that it would mm-hmm. at least support a determinist's point of view. But then I look at all of the data, all the biblical data that would seem to support that humans are genuinely free and responsible and could make choices other than the way they choose. They do, in fact, choose. So... Um, and I used to think, when I was a Calvinist, I used to think that there was more biblical data supporting determinism than there was freedom and responsibility. And mm-hmm. so, I and by thought, determinism, by determinism, you're talking about the idea that God—that's ca- the divine causality, yes, right? That God yes. causes everything. Okay, right, just want right, to make right. sure we're we're keeping up with you. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, but man, as I've studied. As I've done more research, I believe that there's far more biblical data supporting, uh, if you're just taking everything at face value here, um, which isn't necessarily the right thing to do if you're practicing good hermeneutics. But just taking everything at face value, I think there's more biblical data supporting uh, libertarian free will and genuine responsibility. I mean, so here's the thing. If you take all the biblical data, it's clear that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and in control of all things somehow, and that humans are genuinely responsible for some things. Okay, mm-hmm. so if God is in control of all things, yet humans are responsible for some things, then at face value, you've got a contradiction. And so you've mm-hmm. got to go, you're either left with saying there's contradictions in the Bible, or you've got to find a model that connects all of those dots logically, all those biblical thoughts logically. And I contend that Molinism is that model. But anyway, so libertarian free will, um, I guess I'll just say this. 
at, at the least, this means that you are a first mover in, in some of the time, that nothing mm-hmm. else is causing you to mm-hmm. act or think as you do. That some, and for the, just let me interrupt here quickly for the listeners. When, when he's using a term like first mover, this is a philosophical term. It comes from Aristotle. Is that right? Yeah. He had a, this idea of the first mover. And uh, all that really means is that it's something that's causing another thing that isn't caused itself. Is that, is that a kind of a decent yes. way to describe I like, that? I'm, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying all the time, but at least some of the time. I'm a first mover in the sense that I can make a choice which wasn't caused by something other than me. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a falling domino, so to speak. Right. All right. So, but I argue for a stronger sense even of libertarian freedom, not only that I'm a first mover, but that I, when I move in these instances, I could have moved otherwise. Or if I think mm-hmm. uh, a certain thing is true, I, you know, or if I, if I believe something, at least occasionally, I am responsible for my thoughts, and I could have believed otherwise. I've got an article on my website. Um, what is it called? Something about beliefs, uh, being free to believe otherwise. I can't remember the title right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I encourage people to search around there. But anyway, libertarian freedom, I'm a first mover, and I could move otherwise. That's it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you if you say some of that to... Um, Calvinists, and it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of unfair to speculate what a Calvinist would say when there's not a Calvinist here, but you can speak for the Calvinist because you used to be one. I did. Um, And I've had this happen as well. Um, The the trouble they have, and it's an understandable trouble Mm -hmm. because I think that it's something to, to wrestle with and be aware of, but their concern is then that we get the credit then for, you know, like if you freely choose to become a Christian, if you freely choose to accept the the gift of God's grace, then according they would say, according to your view, then you're getting some credit for it, and therefore Jesus doesn't get all the credit. So, what would you right. what would you say to that? Um, first of all, if one's going to hold to tulip, um, and and I've talked about this with uh, in response to uh, one of John Piper's articles, I show that if somebody is going to hold the Calvinistic tulip view, then there's major problems because uh, Jesus, his atoning work is not all powerful, and Jesus didn't pay it all, and the cross was not enough. On that view, you need Jesus plus the majority of humanity damned in hell. Um, and what you're speaking of when you talk about tulip, you're talking about the five points of Calvinist, right. Calvinism. And so right. the one that you were just talking about, are you talking about the L of the tulip, the the concept of limited um, atonement? Well, I think actually the major problem is with the I, the irresistible okay. grace. And mm-hmm. I can actually affirm a nuanced L through the doctrine of God's middle knowledge, which we're going to get into, which is part of Molinism. Um, I... I you know, when I'm having conversations with Calvinists, I'll say, well, sure, I can be a four-point middle-knowledge Calvinist, and I think that's exactly what a, a Molinist is. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's pretty close to Calvinism, actually, and Molina and Calvin were very close, almost on the same page. And I think if they would have been able to spend some time together, they would have uh, wound up being on the same page. But more on that later. Yeah. Um, what, what was your specific question? Oh, it was in regards to do we play a role in our salvation. Is that right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't have to hold that on a Molinist view. In fact, I believe that Molina himself uh, was a monergist. And so the difference between monergism and synergism is that 
Um, on monergism, that means that God does all the, the work of salvation from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And on a synergistic view, that means that a human at least plays a small role in their mm-hmm. salvation process. Now, I actually affirm monergism, that God does all the work from the beginning to end. I contend that if you do nothing, then you will be saved. But those who reject God's grace and reject God's love damn themselves. And so, mm-hmm. so it, it, God's grace... Um, I believe is is universal because his love is universal. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I, who was it? I think I heard uh, Kevin Harris say this on one of the Reasonable Faith podcasts, but that that God is an aspiring universalist, right? Yeah. But because irresistible grace is false, we can resist his grace, and therefore universalism is not true. There are some mm. people who go to hell, and I contend the majority of people damn themselves. But mm. anyway, um, am I, did I answer your question there? Yeah, let me, let me give you a little scenario to kind of, you know, we've talked about a lot of technical terms just to bring this into the practical. So uh, one example I have used, and I'm curious to see what you think about this, uh, just sort of as an answer to the question I asked you about you know, if we accept the, the gift of God, do we, do we get some of the credit because of bearing some of the responsibility? So I heard somebody use this example and I've used it myself and I'm curious what you think. So if you look, if you look at it, like you're in a doctor's office and you're deathly ill and you're going to die mm-hmm. and the doctor gives you the medicine, uh, you have to take the medicine in order to, to actually for the cure to work, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but nobody would say, Hey, look at that hero sick person that took that medicine. The doctor gave him and, and give them any credit. You wouldn't give that person the credit. You'd give the doctor the credit. Right. Uh, but at the same time, the person has the choice to, to actually swallow the medicine or, or not. What do, how do you feel about that? scenario? I, I think that's uh, pretty good. But I think Kenneth Keithley offers a model that's even better, okay. uh, that's similar. Imagine that you wake up inside of an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And if you lay there and do nothing, they will save you. You will be oh, saved. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you rip that IV out of your arm and if you start resisting the doctors and uh, and what they're trying to do to save you, then you will not be saved. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you're not even in control of the. Uh, you didn't. You didn't even have to take the medicine. They they're putting it in your arms. All, if you just sit back, relax, and do nothing, you'll be saved. And so you're right. not doing anything. You're doing nothing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's good. I like it. <laughs> to contribute to your own salvation. And if you do nothing, God will get you to the point where you will freely choose to love and follow him forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even that, thinking that through, logically speaking, you could have done otherwise. And, and right. you know, I've, I've talked to my wife about this before, and I said, okay, when I asked you to marry me, was there any doubt that you even have a passing thought of no go through your head. And she, she said, no, it was yes, yes, yes. As soon as I saw you get down on your knee and, and offer me that ring, it was 100% yes. That's all I could think of. And I said, but were you determined to say yes? Could you have said no? She's like, yeah, of course I could have. I was free mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And now I said, now what if I would have asked you to marry me on our first date? 
Would you have said yes? And she goes, no, of course I would have said no. And I said, what about a month later? Still no. She would have said no. No. But I got her, but she never resisted my flirtatious advances. Mm -hmm. Uh, She never resisted as I would shower her with love and affection and and uh, she never resisted along the way. And so ultimately, I, I got her to a point where I knew she would freely say yes, that right. she would. And, but I think if, but if she would have resisted, if she would have said no to our first date, um, obviously, I would have never got to a point where I could ask her to marry me. If she would have said no uh, anywhere between our first date and uh, my marriage proposal, I couldn't have got to our marriage proposal. If she would have called the cops and put a restraining order against me, mm-hmm. um, she would have never been in a true love relationship with me now. And I think marriage right. is supposed to reflect our relationship with God, earthly marriages. Yeah. And, and I contend that if uh, people aren't free on both sides of the relationship to enter into a relationship, uh, then it's not true love. You can kidnap somebody against their will. And they can start to have feelings for their captor. They can Mm -hmm. even say, I love my captor. But Mm -hmm. we know that's not true love. That's psychological trauma called Stockholm Syndrome. Right. And I don't think God wants Stockholm Syndrome with humans. I think he wants genuine true love. And I contend that genuine true love is the greatest flourishing with God that we could ever experience. Eternal, genuine, true love. Mm -hmm. That the infinite future is the greatest flourishing that any human could experience. And I contend that God desires that for each and every human that he's ever created in his image. And the only reason why, and so, so get this, since true love requires libertarian free will on the part of both parties in the relationship, if free will is really free and not some word game, then we can use, we can freely choose to use that same ability that allows us to love in a backwards kind of way Mm-hmm. But when we use love backwards, that's evil. And that's easy to remember because love spelled backwards is evil. Ah, yeah. Okay. I'm a bad speller, but you get the point. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Be sure and tune in next week as we continue this conversation right where we left off. We're also going to learn a little bit more about Tim's journey out of Calvinism and about some of the history behind the theological concepts we've been talking about. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can go to elisachilders.com and click the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.